as, as a pastor, I get to perform a lot of weddings, okay? And, and uh, I've noticed a big change over the last 10 or 20 years in doing weddings. And one of the things that I've noticed is that Americans don't RSVP to anything anymore. Many a bride or mother of the bride has been stressed out over the count. And I've been in settings where the bride's mother has said to her, have you called those 10 friends? I gotta know, I have to have a count. And there's a ferocity in her voice when she asks her daughter this. And it's not just weddings, it's kids' birthday parties, it's graduation events, uh, it's all kinds of stuff. It's the weirdest thing. Pretty much any Facebook event now, and, and Facebook told us when they added this option. See, in the past, you would either say, yes, I'm going, or no, I'm not. And then Facebook added this third feature, the keep your options open feature, <laughs> which basically you say, I'm interested. Yep, I'll probably go, unless I don't. I mean, you know unless something else better comes along or, or the wrong people are going to the event or you know any number of things, really. And so you can decide to go later. You can keep your options open. I'm interested, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful little feature. And in part, it's fueled by this uh, FOMO and FOMO, F-O-M-O. I, I had to be schooled on what this was. I didn't understand what it was. It means fear of missing out. And apparently, in America, the older you are, the less you care about it. <laughs> the younger you are, the more concerned you are about it. So it, it works inversely. And so uh, the younger you are, the more concerned you are that you might be missing out on something better. So uh, uh, Sherry Turkle, who's done a lot of research on young people and their use of technology, tells us that uh, young people will be at a graduation party and they'll be on their phones looking at, I guess, Instagram pictures of other graduation parties. And if they see the right people at that party or they, that other event looks like it's more fun, you know what they'll do? They'll leave and go to the other event. It's the weirdest thing. Um, and so fear of missing out is, is apparently a thing. Can I just say that we have some commitment issues. <laughs> We've got some commitment issues in America, okay? And, and this shows up everywhere. It shows up everywhere. Uh, if you own a timeshare right now in the United States of America, you're gonna find it very hard to unload that timeshare because younger people look at that and they think, I can't, I can't commit that I might actually use that once over the course of a year. I mean, something could happen. I, I could travel, any number of things. And so timeshare values are, have actually been going down. Uh, smartphones. If you have a contract, it means typically you're middle age. <laughs> or you wanted to get the new phone and they said, here, sign here, or pay this much a month. The younger you are, the more likely it is that you have a pay-as-you-go plan, uh, believe it or not. Uh, there's an aversion to contracts. We Americans, we wait longer to get married. And, and I hear a phrase often regarding that, and this is the phrase, Max, I'm not ready to lock in. I'm not ready to lock in. See, lock in says, I cut out all my other options, and 
you know, it's kind of true. <laughs> and so they're, they're a little weary about making that kind of commitment. Um, I don't sport. Those of you that know me know that I don't sport, okay? And I, I walk in freedom in that. Um, I'm glad that some of you sport. That's so great. <laughs> okay, but when I, when I listen and talk to people who uh, are coaches on local sports teams, one of the things they say is, man, we can't get parents to commit to anything anymore. It's just so hard to get people to commit, and they're all stressed out. And, and uh, uh, my kids are on a swim team, and we don't seem to have a commitment problem. And, and every year, they're like, how do you get your parents to like commit? Like, and at the swim team my kids are on, like when your kids join, you have to sign this piece of paper that says, I will do this many meets where my kid will go off the team. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a contract thing. And so uh, that's weird. Um, events, so if you're in college and you, you have an event, maybe it's a night of worship or any number of things, you'll have a lot of your friends will say, I'm, I'm interested, oh yeah, I th I'm probably gonna come. But you never really know until that event starts Who's gonna actually be there? It's always a crapshoot. And for those of you who are younger, I'm gonna tell you a secret about life in the past. 20, 30 years ago, if you had an event, like days before the event, you could know within five people how many people were gonna show up. It's like totally weird. Like you'd know in advance. Weird, I know it's just amazing to hear that, but believe it or not, that was actually true in America. Uh, in 2010, in 2010, this is eight years ago, uh, presidents of Christian colleges, so places like Asbury, Taylor, Gordon, Trinity, um, uh, and I'm losing my blank about other Christian colleges. Oh yeah, Wheaton. <laughs> my alma mater would love that. <laughs> so they were asked the question, what's changed the most about incoming students over the past 20 years. And do you know above and beyond anything else what these college presidents said, young adults today are far less willing to commit to anything. And it's scaring them. Speaking of my alma mater, like the person who directs the Office of Christian Outreach has written about how it's a struggle. 20, 30 years ago, Wheaties would get into buses and they would commit to a year-long thing where they would be a tutor to a kid in a Chicago City school. And they're finding that today, students are just not willing to commit to a whole year of that tutoring relationship. And it's freaking the person out who heads the Office of Christian Outreach. So again, I just wanna say to us, um, sounds like we got some commitment issues going on, like in America, and so we should talk about that. And here's today's bottom line, in, ca in case you drift off to sleep, the best relationships in life, the best relationships in life, including church, are based on commitment, not your feelings. And this is really, really important. One of the biggest metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the relationship between God and his people, God and the church, is marriage. How weird is that? I, and it's woven all throughout the Bible. Let me read some passages from just some things in the Old Testament. Here's Hosea. God is saying this. I will make you, that's all y'all, my wife forever showing your righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. Ezekiel chapter six, 
but I, I will let a few of my people escape destruction. God's really mad in this one, by the way. And they will be scattered among the nations of the world. And then, when they're exiled among the nations, oh, they'll remember me. They'll recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful hearts and lustful eyes that long for their idols. Hear the passion in this verse about God, okay? And then at last, they'll hate themselves for their detestable sins. They'll know that I'm alone, the Lord, and that I was serious when I said I'd bring this calamity on them. Uh, Isaiah 54 Fear not, you'll no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there's no more disgrace for you. You won't remember the shame of your youth or sorrows of widowhood, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He's your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a burst of anger, I turn my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love, I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then Jeremiah 31, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant, they broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. Did you know that the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ? Did you know that? Um, in the 1940s and 1950s, if you were a young woman who had decided that you wanted to become a nun, at your commissioning ceremony, you would wear a bridal gown. I know, like how weird is that? Because you were marrying the church. You were marrying Jesus. Um, we get this metaphor from Jesus and Paul. Jesus uses the language of marriage and wedding to talk about his mission. And John the Baptist, uh, when everybody's trying to say, you're awesome, he goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This whole thing is like a wedding and Jesus is the groom. See, I'm just one of the attendants. You ought to be focusing on the groom and the groom is Jesus. Um, Paul tells us that marriage is a picture uh, for the kind of commitment that God has for us. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Ephesians chapter five. We're actually gonna be in Ephesians chapter five today. And I'm gonna be talking about marriage and church. And, and there's gonna be lots of crossover. So this could be exciting, <laughs> okay? Ephesians chapter five, this section is, uh, uh, theologians call this, or New Testament scholar, cause scholars call this uh, house codes. So Paul is giving a set of instructions to pairs of people who are either in a domestic or civil relationship of some kind, husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave. And so Paul's giving instructions to people who find themselves in one of those kinds of relationships. And Paul's writing this in part because the Christians of his day are, are not very popular and they're misunderstood. One of, the, one of the things going on is that they keep talking about the fact that Jesus is king. Yesu uh, esten Christos, instead of Caesar being Christos, uh, or Kruyas, Lord. And so, um, and because the Christians were talking about Jesus as king, all the other people were kind of hearing that and going, oh, so you're like 
part of these like religious fundamentalist types that are trying to blow up the government and everything else, like scary. And so it freaked out the Romans, that language. And the other thing that Christians did is because they thought, saw themselves as family, like we talked about last week, husbands and wives would refer to each other as brother and sister. Well, you do that out in public and the Romans would hear that and they'd be like, oh my goodness, I know what you do. Oh, ew, and it, the Romans were freaked out by this. Okay, that's laughable right there, but apparently that was a line they drew in the sand. You can't do that, brothers and sisters, no. Okay, that was a big no from, from the Roman culture of the day. And so Paul's writing this letter, and in part what he's saying is, look, we're not destroying society. I mean, breathe, okay? And the other thing he's trying to say is how a husband and wife treat each other is a picture for what the church is. So, so let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And I want to get it in my Bible. <clears throat> 521. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this, this is a transition between what comes before and what follows. Submit to one another. Paul has been talking about living, uh, living in the light by the power of the Spirit. And he's about to spell out what living in the light by the power of the Spirit looks like for a husband and a wife. And he says, submit to one another. Mutual submission. I defer to you, you defer to me. This is radical, by the way. In the first century, submission was unidirectional. I submit to you because you're my boss. You don't submit to anybody. <laughs> And so this is a radical idea. Well, let's keep going, verses 22 to 24. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, a lot of folks will read this and they will say, Oh, I know what that means. It means the husband is the boss and the wife obeys. The husband has a place of privilege, authority, and dominance. That, in my opinion, is a very unchristian way of reading this passage because of how authority and leadership work in the New Testament. Jesus warns his disciples that if you lead, you can't be like the Gentiles in lord it over people, you must become a what? A servant. So the king of kings and the lord of lords, who's the big boss of everyone, the one whom in all, has all authority is given to him, becomes a servant to us all. So uh, I, I just want you to see this. Now there's a debate and people debate what head or kephale, the, the Greek word is kephale. What does head mean? Does head mean authority? Does it mean source? And I go, eh, I have a, I, my own opinion is that it means authority, but, but when in doubt, for anything for me, I always go to Jesus and I say, how did, if it's authority, how did Jesus exercise his authority? Did Jesus do the whole, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, boom. Peter, knock him over. You're not obeying me. Is that how Jesus exercised his authority? No, Jesus didn't exercise his authority that way. So the focus in, uh, and Paul himself in this passage tells us that he gave himself up 
for the church. That's how Jesus exercised his authority, okay? So the focus here isn't, oh, I get to be boss. The focus is self-giving love and mutual submission. So in, in saving the church, Jesus submits to becoming human and he submits to death himself by dying on the cross. And the church submits to the one who gave himself up for the church. By the way, if, if your marriage, if you're married and you're here today and you're married, if your marriage is characterized by self-giving love and mutual submission, you probably won't ever get divorced. You wanna know why? Those qualities are like divorce busters because anyone in a relationship that's characterized by self-giving love and, and mutual, uh, uh, mutual submission, it's a relationship they wanna stay in. They're like, this is awesome. I know, isn't that weird <laughs> how that works? Okay, so let's keep going through this passage, verses 25 and following. Uh, Self-giving love and mutual submission are what characterize a Christian marriage. Okay, so for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one who hates his own body but feeds, uh, no one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Marriage apparently is a metaphor, a picture that's supposed to illustrate the relationship that God has with his church. And so husbands are told, love your wives. Give yourselves for her benefit. Again, this is radical for the first century. Few sources in the ancient world talk about a husband loving his wife. If you were to have a TARDIS and go back to the first century and, and talk and interact with people living in that time and go, you love your wife, right? They would look at you like you were from Mars. Huh? Love my wife, like what is that? Okay, and so Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Husbands, love your wives. The normal of the first century is husbands rule, wives obey. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Husbands love and give themselves with the same self-giving love of Jesus Christ. Self-giving love, mutual submission, characterize a Christian marriage. So I would say to you, this is just my opinion, that anytime someone says submission just goes one way or is, is a unidirectional thing and that that's what marriage is supposed to be, one person's the boss and the other person just says, yes, I, you know, by your command, that they're not reading the scriptures through the greater lens of the New Testament and through Jesus himself. And it ignores the teaching example of Jesus and it ignores the one another commands in Paul's letters. So if you're married, if you're married, I wanna ask some questions. In light of what we read in these verses, right? Are you growing into deeper oneness with Jesus? Is Jesus leading? Are you following? Have you settled for independence in your marriage? In other words, he does his thing, I do my thing. She does her thing, I do my thing. Separate but equal. Is your marriage characterized by division? We don't see that in these verses. Um, are you letting past sins 
make your marriage sick by either denial or unforgiveness? So those are some questions that I would pose to those of you who are married since we're in a passage talking about marriage. But that's not why I'm in this, these verses today. I want to talk about the church. So verses 31 and following, Paul says this, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says it's a mystery. Any man who's married would say, amen. It's a mystery. Amen. Who can understand it? And then he says, but it's also a picture, an illustration. So if you see a husband and a wife who've been married 60 years, and that marriage, it's not perfect, but it's been characterized by self-giving love and mutual submission, and you see them on the dance floor at your cousin's wedding, you smile, don't you? You think, wow, that's amazing. I want to have a life like that. And Paul's saying, also, you should also be reminded of the fact that uh, that's the kind of commitment that Jesus Christ has for his church. That's the kind of commitment. Now, for the longest time, the idea that the church was the bride of Christ wigged me out. Like, I don't get in my car and on the drive to church think, man, I want to sing some songs today about how Jesus is my husband and how I just love him. Like, you know, I don't drive to church going, man, I just want that. And, you know, that's not a picture or a metaphor that necessarily sets my heart on fire. And so if you're here today and you're a guy like me, right, what I want you to see in this is the commitment, the commitment that God has. I've never been in the military, but I've talked to guys who have been, especially guys who've served as Marines. And they will tell me, what they tell me is that in the smallest unit, I think it's called a platoon. Do I have that right? Maybe. The smallest unit, I don't know, because I've never served. They say that in that context, those guys are brothers. There's a level of commitment to one another that eclipses everything. The worst thing you can do is desert them. It's like almost an unforgivable sin. But they will give their lives for one another because they are committed to each other. That's the kind of commitment that Paul wants us to see in this passage. A really good marriage speaks to a familiarity and a closeness and a confidence that comes from a stable relationship. In light of what Paul says in these verses, I want to ask some questions of us. In light of the commitment that God has to us, the church, and we know that God is faithful even when we're not, how would you rate your end of the relationship? How would you rate your level of faithfulness and commitment to the relationship? And what would you like to change in 2018? Today's an opportunity. Today's a new day. What would you like to change in 2018 in how you relate to Jesus? Again, the best relationships in life, including the church, especially the church, are based on 
commitment and not your feelings. So I I, want to make this as practical as I can because we've been in this passage and this passage is saying so much more. Like I could preach on this for a month or a year. So how do we live this out? What does this look like? Well, if you're here at Generations, become a partner. If this is your local church, uh, we don't do membership at Generations, but we do partnership. Uh, the difference is like uh, a, a gym. So for those of you that use a gym to work out or swim or whatever, members come in and they see stuff, dirty towels or whatnot, and they think, man, this place is going to pot. Look at this. I can't believe how they're, how they're treating me. I'm a, I'm a member here, by goodness. But a partner of the gym comes in, sees the towels and says, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Well, we may have guests today. We have people coming in to use the gym. I've got to do something about this. In other words, a partner has ownership of what's going on. And so if you want to become a partner, there's sheets on the table in the back that'll tell you about it, or you can contact me. But it's a way to say, I'm committed. I'm committed. If you're, if you're younger, um, if you're a student or a teenager here today, hear me, please. Some see some things in your life all the way to the end. See some things in your life all the way to the end. It's a whole different experience on senior night when the coach or the director is talking about the seniors, when they can say of you, man, they have been so faithful and so committed, right? So see some things in your life all the way to the end. Parents, if, if your son or daughter RSVPs to a kid's party and then something else comes along that they want to go to that's better, have them honor their original commitment. One of the things we've done with our kids that's caused consternation from time to time is, uh, John's not here today so I can tell this, he would, he would lock in on an event and then a better offer would come along and we would butt heads. And, I would, and, and my thing to John was always, no. We, com- we said, you said to your friend, I will be there. You, you want to be a liar? You want to renege on your word? Like, what are we, you know, again, you can get crazy with any of this stuff, but this is a very small way that we as parents can help our kids see the true value of other people to see beyond themselves, right? Because when you have people who say they're coming and then they're not, whether you like it or not, you always receive that poorly. Um, and, and so that's something that we can do as parents, right? Honor, keep your commitments that you commit to. And then fourth, I know you have emotions. I have emotions. I'm going to tell you a secret. There are days that I get up out of bed and I think to myself, I don't feel like preaching today. <laughs> I'm going to tell you there are days that I wake up and I say to myself, I don't feel like preaching today. You can't let your feelings drive. Now, your feelings are important, and we're going to get into a major series after Easter that's about emotional health. But for now, for today, what I would say to you is, would you please take the keys away from your feelings, right? Because if you let feelings drive your commitment, you're going to be places you don't want to be in just 10 years. We Americans... I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like whoever feels like saving money. 
I just want to save money. It's great. I'm tucking it away for later. <laughs> no one. You know, I feel like exercising three or four times this week to the point where my heart's pounding out of my chest. That's going to be awesome. We don't, we lack commitment and discipline with these things, okay? So don't let your feelings drive your decisions, okay? One last thing about this passage, and I want to read some things from Revelation. It's very popular today for people to say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, okay? And in another message, I've talked about that. So, uh, and, and there are legitimate reasons for having those feelings. There are, and I want to acknowledge that. But when we say, if we take the language of Ephesians at face value, that Jesus is the head and the church is the body, when people say they love Jesus but not the church, what they're saying metaphorically is, I love me a decapitated head. Just slit it off, have some of the blood vessels dangling, just give me the head, that's all I want. First of all, that's gross. It's just gross. Secondly, it's not biblical. And lastly, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If anyone, if anyone has the right to walk away from the church, if anyone has the right to disown it, if anyone has the right to give up on the church, you know who that is? Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> He's the one that has the right to go, church, you stink, peace out, I'm out of here. He has the right to run and never look back. And you know what? He never will. He will never give up on his church. Listen to how the revelation that Paul, uh, John had of the last day of Resurrection Day. Listen to these verses from Revelation. Uh, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Jesus. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. And then in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 